Every year, as the weather gets colder, as the days get shorter, right around Thanksgiving, many people begin a transition toward the Christmas season. This is a very common and normal human behavior. We see it in all kinds of advertising. Uh, we notice it on certain radio stations that decide to go 24-7 Christmas music for the next month or so. We see it in all kinds of media programming, Christmas specials, the old, the great old ones like the Charles Schultz or the whatever crazy claymation ones that were done back in the 60s and 70s to the new ones that come out today. Uh, in fact, the notorious Black Friday celebration happening later this week in stores everywhere and now online uh, is the annual opening bell for the Christmas season. And all of this takes place because, well, Christmas is a big deal and it should be celebrated. In the Zilke home, at the end of this week, I will climb up into my garage and I will get the two boxes that contain our artificial Christmas tree, which looks very real, by the way. I learned my lesson the first two years of marriage. Pine needles are no joke when you have to clean up after them. But I will have to probably scrape off a wasp nest that lodges itself on the inside of the box because it's been in my garage the whole year. I also take the tree out to get the spiders out. Um, I just consider it a Zilky family Christmas tradition, you know. We all have them. That and I have no space left in my basement with eight children. So all that's going to take place. We will get the decorations which are in the basement. We'll bring those up. And Julie, with usually the younger children, will spend a couple hours replacing some of the knickknacks that she has throughout the year with Christmas-themed knickknacks and put up Christmas decorations. And we will transition our home from what it is today to the Christmas Yuletide spirit home that the Zilke home becomes every year. However, there are others out there, and you know who you are, who instead of waiting for Thanksgiving... Like normal people, you dream about Christmas all year round. You know, those folks who begin sneaking out their Christmas wares right after Halloween. Instead of the Halloween stuff going down, it's replaced with Christmas stuff. Or they start humming songs sometime in early uh, November, various Christmas carols. Anybody know someone like that in your life or in your circle? We all have them. I call these people the Christmas crazies. In fact, I work with one such person who got all bubbly and ready to explode uh, with Christmas excitement right around Veterans Day. And I didn't know they were a Christmas crazy. In fact, they, uh, in my mind I was thinking, have some respect for those who served our country. We can't just skip ahead to Christmas already. We've got some really important holidays to remember. Anyway, you might know her as Kelsey or Kelly. She responds to both. Well, she is full bore Christmas crazy. In fact, one of her antics was purchasing a light bulb cup that she would drink from. And when inquired, she said, Jeremy, I purchased this just for you <laughs> to taunt me. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's part of the Christmas spirit. Well, may the Lord bless you with wonderful people like Kelsey in your life this Christmas season. Now, if you've been around Rooftop from last Christmas or prior, you know that we also love to celebrate Christmas around here. And every year, we do a Christmas-themed sermon series. Now, we might not love Christmas as much as Kelsey does, but we love it a lot nonetheless. So we do it like normal people love it. So normally we wait till Thanksgiving. I know, we're guilty. 
to get five weeks in before Christmas Eve, we had to start this week. It's all about the sermon programming. So our apologies. In a couple years, we'll be wrapped back on the right schedule. But Christmas, which celebrates the human birth of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, is a holiday rich with spiritual meaning and worthy of rooftops celebration. In fact, Christmas and Easter are routinely duking it out for Christian holiday supremacy. Now, here at Rooftop, we look at these two holidays kind of like we look, like, look at children, where both are wonderful and have their attributes that we want to celebrate. So for the next five weeks, as we do every year, we too will join in the Yuletide spirit with our own Christmas sermon series. And this year, we are calling it The Coming of the King. During this series, we will look at the impact that Jesus' birth had on different people back when he was born. We will look at the impact it had on Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, on other major players like the shepherds and the wise men, which are both referenced uh, numerous times in the Christmas story in the Bible. We will also be introduced to some lesser-known characters who are directly connected to the Christmas story that you might not know about or remember. For those of you who celebrate a weekly Christmas Advent like some denominations and Christian traditions do, our series will mirror some of those weekly celebrations and weekly teachings. Now, while the Christmas story is filled with wonderful characters, amazing storylines, and a beautiful narrative where heaven and earth intersect for one moment in history, the birth of Jesus Christ did not just happen out of thin air. There had actually been thousands of years of buildup throughout ancient history as God prepared the world for the arrival of his son in human form. You can see whispers of Jesus' birth as far back as Genesis, chapter 3, when God is pronouncing the judgment and the consequence of the disobedience of, his, of Adam and Eve, but yet giving hope to the future. You can see it in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham a pagan out of pagan living and says, you will be my man, you will be the father of my nation. He promises to send redemption in Genesis chapter 12. Events in history past pointed toward the arrival of Jesus Christ, though when it happened, those who were there or heard them or saw them, they could not see it so clearly before it happened. That's the beautiful thing about our position, the retrospective view or 2020 vision hindsight, as we call it. Today, we can go back and now... We can do what they can. We can see clearly through the events that took place what God was doing all along. And today is the first message of our new series, and we're going to do just that. See, the Bible is divided into two major parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus. It talks about his life. It talks about him building his ministry. Uh, it talks about his death and resurrection. And then... The book of Acts, those are the first four Gospels, the first four books of the Gospels. Then the book of Acts and the letters to, written by the various church leaders, those talk about the growth of the church and the aftermath of Jesus' departure and how the church and the Gospel message with it took root and grew around the known world at that time for roughly the first 30 or 40 years of the church. But the New Testament is only one-third of the Bible. The first two-thirds of the Bible belong to the Jewish people and the story of what happened prior to the birth of Jesus. We call this part the Old Testament. The books of the Old Testament written by various leaders of Israel, by scribes and priests, by historians, and by people we call prophets. 
Prophets were God's messengers to his people, usually sent when Israel was not listening or obeying God very well. They came with warnings from God about what would happen if they continued down that path. They came with calls for them to turn and to follow the God that they said they would. It is in these books and the scrolls of the prophets that God also chose to foretell more clearly and with significant detail the coming of his son, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, this foretelling is not easy stuff. We're talking about describing details of an event that happened centuries later, before it, the event would happen centuries after the prophet called his shot. You have to be on another level, both as God and as the prophet, to accomplish this. And this morning, we're going to look at three of those individuals who were on another level. Now, there were more to choose from than just the three, but for brevity's sake, we had to narrow it down. Uh, these three individuals, they were true prophets of God. They were ordinary people, or we might say they were extraordinary people, not so ordinary, who were chosen by God to be his messenger. The three we're going to talk about this morning are Micah, Hosea, and Isaiah. Let's start with Micah. Now, Micah, by comparison, is called a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Now, he's not minor because he had a less important role or he was smaller than the bigger prophets. He's a minor prophet because we know less about him. There's less detail written about him. And the book that he's responsible for, or the letter he's responsible for, is of a shorter uh, nature than some of the larger books. Some of the major prophets are Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Minor prophets would include Micah. Now, Micah was a patriot. He loved his country. He loved Israel. He lived and prophesied during the years 740 to 716 B.C. Obviously, B.C. counts backwards as we look at it now. So that's roughly 700 to 750 years before Jesus would be born. He's described as a very religious man, which fits because he was a prophet, but who was not accepted in the prophetic guilds of the day. Well, what's a guild? You ever heard of the Screen Actors Guild? The guild is the local union. Yes, there was a prophet union back in Israel. There was more than just the prophets that God sent. Profiteering, no pun intended, was a profitable business when you didn't have factories and mass transit and you didn't have a, a, the ability to earn income like we do in our world today. A prophet, if he found favor with the king of the day, could be given incredible gifts could be raised to great stature. And so there were these prophets in waiting and training. And to protect themselves and to kind of weed out those who weren't in the group, they formed unions or what we would know as guilds. Micah was a non-union prophet. He was not accepted by the local 688 prophet guild there in Israel. In fact, being a non-union prophet was difficult because you could be roughed up by the local 688 prophets who were there who thought you were infringing on their turf. Micah also got roughed up because the true prophets of God would go before the kings and they would give very hard messages for these wayward kings regarding the people of Israel. That could also get you in a lot of trouble in that day. Well, amongst other things that he talks about, he's given one verse in the middle of his book the book of Micah in the Old Testament, that is an incredibly clear and important prophecy about the birth of Jesus. It's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And this is what Micah says. 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is the city of Bethlehem and the surrounding region in that day, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. What's that verse saying? saying, out of Bethlehem will be born a king who will rule, but not just any king. This king will have existed from the ancient of times. In a sense, he's saying a godlike human will be born in Bethlehem who will rule the nation. Now, that's a very powerful and forthright prophecy. Micah called this shot over 700 years before it would happen. And you know what? Nailed it. We gloss over it, but this is amazing. We see these prophecies and we just kind of ho-hum and we move along, but I don't want to do that this morning. I want to stop and think about. These are true words recorded, verified over time, and then fulfilled through the sovereign power of God to accomplish his will and his plan. In Matthew 2.1, the author, Matthew, who writes about the gospel story of Jesus after Jesus departs, he records this. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And if you read, continue reading in the Gospels about the story, the Magi came to Herod and asked, where will he be born? Herod tells his scribes to go look in the old books and they find he'll be born in Bethlehem. And, and Herod sends the Magi away. They go, they worship Jesus, they give their gifts, but they're talked to in a dream that Herod intends harm towards the young king, and they go back differently. When Herod finds out that they departed another way, he's furious, and he unleashes a military detachment to kill all the children in Bethlehem two years and under. A couple nights before that happened, an angel came to Joseph and said, leave Bethlehem so that Jesus would not succumb to the fate of the other children. Our next prophet is a man named Hosea. Some of you might know about him. He was a prophet about the same time as Micah. You wonder if they ever got together and hung out. You know, the true prophets hang out. Was it a, was it a little creek or something? Or did some guy have a, uh, I don't know, did, what did he have, had a, have a, had a tavern back in Israel? The Bible doesn't say. But like most prophets, his life and service to God was marked with much suffering. I can't get into the details, but God asked Hosea to do some really hard things. The Bible calls him a man of great sorrow because of the life that God called him to. He was God's spokesperson for the northern kingdom. Israel, after Solomon, rebelled against God and it split into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasted longer because that's where Jerusalem was. The northern kingdom was conquered eventually because it was more wicked uh, initially. And he was the prophet to the northern kingdom right before Assyria, the empire of the north, that was going to come down and wipe out the northern kingdom. Tough place to be when you're the prophet right before the destruction of your, of your country. Within his book, he was given the following short but very clear prophecy about Jesus. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the people of Israel were in Egypt and were called out, but the last part of that prophecy is distinct. Because he, who did he call out of Egypt? Not just Israel, but also his son. 
that dream where Mary and Joseph left Bethlehem, you know what that angel told them to do? Go to Egypt. Jesus spent a period of time in Egypt waiting for Herod to die. And the Bible says when Herod died, an angel came to him, and they returned back to Israel. Matthew chapter 2, 14 and 15 says this. He says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, Out of Egypt I called my son. Here we have Matthew, the gospel writer, telling us that the 700-plus-year-old prophecy of Hosea is true, and here's how it was fulfilled. Again, called a shot. Our third and final prophet we're going to look at this morning is Isaiah. Now, Isaiah lived between the years 740 and 686 B.C. The book of Isaiah is substantial. Psalms is the longest book by chapter, but by words, Isaiah and Jeremiah compete for the lengthiest book, word for word, in the entire Bible. Isaiah was a little different than the other prophets. He was believed to be royalty, some kind of relation, cousin, second cousin to the king. Like his contemporaries, Israel, Isaiah spoke about God's judgment, but more than any other prophet, he spoke of the forthcoming salvation of God for his people. He also spoke about heaven and God's glorious eternal reign, Isaiah got to speak about many things that no other prophet is recorded having spoken about. However, if he were alive today, if Isaiah were here and we asked him, what was the best thing, what was the biggest blessing about your ministry, I'm convinced, if asked, he would say this, that the greatest blessing and privilege as a prophet of God was to have spoken more about Jesus Christ and his birth and his life than any other prophet did. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah writes this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Jesus will be born through a virgin birth. Matthew 1, and 23 affirms this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The term Emmanuel just means in Hebrew, God is with us. He is present. Thus, Jesus obviously fulfilling that title. In Isaiah chapter 9, for any of you who have been around church for a while or even in your church traditions, if they're a little bit more denominational, conservative, the Hallelujah Chorus and other Christmas hymns, the next couple of verses will ring a bell. In Isaiah 9 verse 2, Isaiah wrote this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's speaking about the time of Jesus' birth. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Later in Isaiah 9, four verses later, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now it's not just these, but there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament directly and indirectly speaking about the birth and life of Jesus Christ. And they're all fulfilled. They speak to a promised deliverer, a Messiah, a victorious king. Now, I think it's important for us to, to not overlook this. 
this is really important because we struggle with feeling like, who's really in control? We struggle with feeling like, okay, God, we have this thing, but can I really trust you? God gave us all of these prophecies and then fulfilled all of them for a purpose. He wanted to show us the importance of his plan. And personally, I, have, I presently do, and when I'm not a knucklehead and ignoring it, when I think about it, I am amazed at the revelation of the sovereignty of God to accomplish his great purpose and plan in bringing Jesus Christ. This is incredibly important for us. It's amazing. And we need to stop and be amazed by this. In our home, we try to practice this through the celebration of Advent. We do two different types of Advent. An Advent is simply a way of looking towards, of kind of counting towards the arrival of Jesus. Uh, Religious traditions practice it. Christian traditions practice it in different ways. One of the ways we do it is a daily walk beginning on November 30th towards Christmas Day through this really cool, um, it's now, there's several different options of it. It's called the Jesse Tree. We have ornaments that are pictures of different stories from the Old Testament that point towards Jesus. And as you read the story, you or a child hangs an ornament on a tree. We've been doing this since David, our oldest, who's 17, was this big. And he's had 17 years. Now the Vivian's at two, and she's going to hang the ornaments with her little limp, of course, that she still has from breaking her leg a, week, a month ago, but it'd still be really cute. But this is important. These are really important times and opportunities that we've had. We also celebrate a weekly Advent. On Sunday, we take extra time, just like we do here with a message. And we talk about the people who were the messengers of God. We talk about the prophets, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men. And then we finish with the Christmas story on Christmas Day. These are central pieces to the Zilke home and have been since our children were little. And this is the reason we do it. To remind ourselves as adults, because we need to be reminded, I am not above that, I need to be reminded, I leak. The good that God puts in me leaks out for the selfish and sinfulness of me, and I need to be repouring him into me. We do this to remind ourselves, but also to teach our children or our grandchildren, if that might be your situation, year after year that God had a plan. Nothing was by accident. Nothing was by chance. He controlled every detail. Even when things went bad, God was in control. And you know what that means? That means that God's in control of our lives today. And that is a message that our children need to hear, our children should hear, our children will want to hear. It's a message that's going to be fundamental to the strength of their faith in the years ahead. Not only that, Parents, do we need to be speaking? But dads, I don't know what kind of role you play. Sometimes a dad can be kind of quieter and more in the background as mom steps in. In this regard, our silence to our children is deafening. And I want to invite you to encourage you to, even if you don't know what to say, there are tools and things that can do that, but the voice of a dad speaking spiritual and biblical truths is a powerful, powerful sound in the mind and in the heart of our children. I don't want to feel, have, feel any, throw any condemnation on you, but I want to encourage you. Be at the center of this tradition. Let your children hear your voice. For those of you who are single mom homes, 
I believe God's grace is present. You be obedient, you be faithful, and God will fill in those gaps. My greatest concern, though, is dad, where dad doesn't say much. And what does the kid draw from that? So that's my encouragement. I'll step down uh, off of that soapbox, and I'll step up onto another one. All right, I'm going to talk about the dude in the red coat. So if this is a spoiler alert, I'm giving you 10 seconds to take your child and depart the room. 10, 9, I'm serious, 8, 7, no one's moving, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, all right, very good. I don't have anything personally against Santa. In fact, the story and the the cartoons are wonderful. And they're great stories. I remember watching them as a kid. But when we allow Santa to be a centerpiece in our home to the omission of Jesus or even on the same level, what are we communicating as followers of Jesus? Because someday the truth about that's going to be made known. But with Jesus, we never have to tell him something different. We've chosen to enjoy the story, but not make it the central piece. We've chosen to make the manger, the Bible, the center of that. And I just encourage you as parents, I know we have great memories of our own, and we do, but just something to think about. And again, it's not anything that we do maliciously, but the omission of the story, the details that we've talked about, and there are other amazing details Those are the bedrock of a faith because when your children are young, you know what? They think you're God. They believe every word you say. If you use that time to tell them, you know what, and you have to later tell them something different, you've really squandered the opportunity you have when they believe every word that you say that Jesus Christ for centuries was foretold and told to come. So, Here's my other soapbox I'll step down from. Thank you for obliging me. All this. And then at 400 BC, Malachi, the last prophet, died and God went silent. For 400 years, he didn't say a word. Now, there are other prophets there, as I told, who came up and they're trying to get the king's attention and trying to earn a living and you know, but they didn't have anything from God to say and they misled Israel and Israel was conquered and they rebelled against their conquerors and they were brutally treated and then they reconquered, they rebelled and they won their freedom but then they were conquered again and this has happened for 40 years and no voice from God came. And with the rest of our time, the last six, seven minutes, I want to talk about this. It's that sometimes God is silent. Sometimes God is silent. And he makes us wait for him in that silence. And it can be a very long time. Think about how long a time went between the prophets who spoke of Jesus' birth for when it actually happened. The three we talked about, it was about 700 years. Imagine that. Imagine waiting 700 years for something to happen. Now let's take a quick jump back in history. What was happening in 1319-ish? Well, the Renaissance was just beginning in Italy with the writers Dante and Petrarch. The Aztecs had established Tenochtitlan on the site of the modern city of Mexico City. The only non-natives to be in North America were some marauding Vikings that had landed way up north but had left and gone back to Scandinavia. 
the Mongol dynasty was still wreaking havoc in Europe and Asia. And this time, 700 years ago, we were still 450 years away from the founding of these United States. That was a long time ago. It was a long time to call your shot and to hit the target time and again. But then those last 400 years of silence, how long was that? Well, what was happening 400 years ago? 400 years ago, at this time, the pilgrims were just making plans to go to the New World. They hadn't yet come to America. They were getting their affairs in order, getting ready to set sail the following year. New York, America's greatest city, would not be established for five, six, excuse me, six more years in 1625. That's how long ago it was that God was silent to his people. So his people waited. He was silent with his people, and they waited. And they were conquered by, by a new brutal empire, and they waited some more. And they rose up against their conqueror and drove them out, only to be reconquered later and treated brutally again. And still they waited. And they waited, and they waited. I'm sure over the centuries, many Israelites had given up hope. How many of us would have given up hope had God been silent for that long? This is the world that Christ was born into. A huge void had been created by God's silence. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the power holders had taken political control over Israel under the thumb of Rome. They had distorted the word of God, the message of the prophets, even what the coming Messiah would look like. In this silence, he would look a certain way, definitely not how Jesus looked, and they had misled Israel. The few true followers of God in Israel, which the Bible talks about, they held on to hope and God's promise. Having lived in darkness for so long, they knew that the world that they were living in was not what God intended. And they prayed for their Messiah, and they waited. So what about us? Well, what does God want to teach us from the message today, from the silence, as we wait? The first is this. God is faithful. Even when we have to wait, and a really, really, really long time, he's faithful. I know some of us have been waiting a couple years, three years, five years. It's not been 700. It's not been 400. He's faithful. He is working behind the scenes to accomplish his will and the promises that he made. He said he will, and he will. We should celebrate him this Christmas and worship him for his faithfulness in sending Jesus. Jesus' arrival was the fulfillment of these many prophecies. We celebrate, we worship because God is faithful. He kept his word. He is keeping his word. He will keep his word. That's why we worship. Not just because sweet baby Jesus is beautiful. No, it's because God is faithful and continues to be faithful. The second thing we do is we realize he's coming again. He's coming again a second time. And he's not been silent for the last 400 years. No, we stand on the shoulders of a church that was established 2,000 years ago at his death and resurrection. And there have been amazing acts of God through the church, through normal, sinful, struggling people like you and I. And the church endures and it grows and the gospel message goes out. God has been anything but silent. And he's coming again. Not in a manger, not hiding from King Herod. He will come in the clouds as the conquering king that he always intended to be. 
we need to worship and proclaim that as well at Christmas and at every time we gather and come together as his people. And so this first day of the sermon series, this beginning of the Christmas season, just want to invite you and myself, all of us, to, to remember God's faithfulness and to be excited that he's coming again to fulfill the promises that he's made. A promise to once and for all bring heaven and earth together, intersecting, finally, perfectly, for all time. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for all the details that you give. And they're hard. At first glance, many of us have delved into these books and we've been confused or we've gotten lost and all the other stuff, but there are amazing promises in here, promises that you have fulfilled. And there are other promises in here that you are fulfilling and that you yet will fulfill because you are faithful. And I pray that we would hold dear to that. We would teach that to one another, encourage each other in that, teach that to our children. Your faithfulness as seen in your word and Christmas and the beauty of this life that you are leading us in. Thank you for not being silent to us. Thank you for speaking loudly and clearly through Jesus as we wait that you will fulfill the promise that you've made. We bless you. We worship you in Jesus' name.